Hi everyone, my name is Pete Finn and I'm a lecturer in politics at Kingston University and this is the COVID-19 and democracy podcast. Um, in the last couple of weeks we've done something, some slightly different things with the podcast. So we had one week that was me delivering a lecture, another week where I read an audio briefing somewhat successfully, not necessarily wholly successfully, or something that I co-wrote over the summer on US politics. And this week we um, excitingly return to our normal kind of structure on the podcast and this week on the podcast we are going to talk about COVID-19 as usual and the politics around it but we're going to talk it quite excitingly within the context of another pandemic which is the HIV AIDS pandemic and um, I'm very well very lucky to be um, joined on the podcast today by my King's University colleague Max Morris um and i should say max is at kingston till the end of this year and then very excitingly will be joining oxford books so um sad for kingston but great for oxford and um, so max welcome onto the podcast thank you pete it's an absolute pleasure to be invited oh no it's a pleasure it's a pleasure to have you on um so um max can you tell listeners before we delve into the details of the hiv age pandemic and COVID-19 and maybe what lessons we can draw um, between the two of those. Could you just give listeners a bit of an introduction to your work prior to the COVID-19 pandemic? Sure, so uh, as you mentioned, I'm a, a lecturer in criminology uh, at Kingston for the time being and then soon Oxford Brooks. Um, but my background is kind of broadly in the sociology of sexualities and gender. Um, so I've done research around, for example, uh, changing social attitudes towards uh, LGBTIQA plus people, uh, masculinities, kind of how, how gender is represented on social media, um, as well as sex work. And then actually leading up to this project, the, uh, the kind of the, the criminalization and decriminalization uh, of sex work, homosexuality and HIV. Um, so that kind of segued into this project, looking at comparisons between HIV COVID-19 kind of two, uh, if you like, contemporary pandemics that we're living through. Um, okay, brilliant. Um, and so before we get on to COVID-19, um, can you just perhaps for listeners, and I, I would include myself in this actually, <laughs> um, who are not experts on the study of um, HIV and AIDS, um, uh, with a brief introduction to to the pandemic and how you might study it and some of the kind of key takeaways that have evolved out of kind of academia since over the sure. And I realise um, so, that's a lot to do. <laughs> uh, so I suppose in most people's minds, they associate HIV with its kind of emergence in the 1980s. So it was first um, described in 1981, although it was probably around uh, prior to that. Uh, and then it's been associated with kind of that particular period because during the 1980s and early 1990s, uh, it was, um, for lack of a better phrase, uh, a death sentence for anybody who tested positive. I don't like that language of death sentence because it implies you know, an element of uh, a punishment or, or guilt almost around the virus. And that's something that my research has also looked at is how do we kind of, how do we use language uh, such as admit or, you know, uh, you know language that implies certain forms of guilt or responsibility around viruses um, and of course that happened in a particular political zeitgeist you had Ronald Reagan in the White House Margaret Thatcher uh, number 10 a particular kind of neoliberal 
political era when a lot of emphasis was on individual responsibility. So that kind of became combined with fear and, and stigma around the virus. And of course, uh, being a sexually transmitted virus, uh, it was also associated with particular groups who were already marginalized, demonized um, by the media, by in, in politics and society more broadly, including gay and bisexual men, sex workers, trans women, people who in, people who use drugs. So you know, it, it became associated with those forms of stigma, certainly uh, in Western countries. So that's kind of the, the origin of the virus, if you like. And in many ways, lots of our cultural representations of it are still rooted in that period. So lots of people may have watched the very, very popular, critically acclaimed It's a Sin by Russell T Davies on Channel 4 recently. And that, of course, is set in that period of the 1980s. Uh, however, one of the things that I'm kind of interested in, not only as a researcher studying this topic, but also as someone living with HIV, is how much the, the virus and, and the treatment for it has changed. It's changed kind of, it's been a revolution, if you like, uh, of medical uh, treatment so that now someone like me living with HIV can take one or two pills a day um, and will have a completely average life expectancy and uh, literally cannot pass the virus on. So my partner and I um, are what's sometimes called a sero-discordant couple, so he's HIV negative, I'm HIV positive, but because of my treatment uh, I, I literally cannot pass on the virus to him or anybody else. So it's, it's kind of been a, a revolution, if you like, in, in what HIV means today, but we still have that cultural hangover, that lag from the 1980s where people are very fearful of something that's now um, quite easily and, and readily uh, treatable, certainly in, in countries where access to treatment is available, uh, such as the UK. So kind of a lot of my research has focused on thinking about, okay, so given that transformation uh, in the virus, in, in the ways that we can treat it, um, you know, does it make sense to keep laws, for example, that criminalize the transmission of HIV on the statute book? Does it make sense to maintain any sort of sexual stigma around this, this virus? Um, and, you know, and again, thinking about what are the effects of that stigma for the lives of people living with HIV? Okay, brilliant. Um, very, very interesting and well, well surmised. <laughs> very long history, uh, well surmised. I suppose, um, I, I, I mean, this wasn't you know, the questions I sent you, but it just came to mind now, actually. is So in the, U, in the UK context, right, there's that famous advert from the 1980s with the, the gravestone, right? Is, is that still, does that still feed into, um, I mean, we're decades on from it, right? And as you quite eloquently <laughs> discussed it, you know, probably, uh, you know, that, that idea is, should have dissipated, but does that still play a part in, in the oh. narrative around HIV? Definitely, yeah. So I think I, I often say this. I think there are two images that that stay in people's have stayed in people's minds, and one of them is, as you say, that that very infamous tele television advert by the Department for Health in 1987, I think, um, sometimes called the Tombstone advert. I think it was officially the Monolith uh, it was referred to, and there was another one that went with it, which was the Iceberg, um, and they it had uh, John Hurt's voiceover. Um, so obviously kind of very famous from science fiction film 1984 alien and so on giving this very sort of doomsday you know it's a deadly virus there's no cure um very sort of fear-mongering if you like and uh and of course at the time many people have said that that was necessary it was a, it was a, a relatively new um pandemic or, or, or global epidemic as it's now referred to by the who 
and you know people needed the information to, to protect themselves and others was the, was the feeling. Unfortunately, as you say, there's, there's not been any public health awareness campaign since then to update the record. So, so people have that memory of that very dramatic, scary advert um, and all the messaging around it. But they don't sort of, and that's really stayed in the public consciousness, I think, because you know, certainly people, I've spoken to colleagues, for example, who, um, who remember it from their childhood or from their early teens, and it's sort of left this lasting uh, you know, legacy in their memories. Um, and, uh, and that's particularly interesting, I think, sociologically, kind of you know, how do certain images, certain messages stay in our minds and, and, and what responsibility does government have you know, for releasing that? Um, that video, does it have a, a responsibility to continue educating the public or re-educate the public on, you know, hey, hey, hold on, it's not a death sentence anymore. It's, it's readily, readily treatable, manageable. Um, and, and, you know, uh, but then again, you know, I suppose in a crisis situation, governments aren't so concerned sure, with that longer sure. term yeah, yeah. planning. Um, and then the other image I think that people have in mind is of Princess Diana shaking hands with hospital patients. So again, you know, a much more positive image, and, and she, you know, she was quite a visible activist in, in, in that area in terms of you know, trying to reduce the stigma uh, and suffering of, of people with HIV and AIDS. Um, uh, and uh, however, it's still that image of uh, death and, and, and disease and, and kind of people wasting away uh, that's just stuck in the mind. Um, you don't often you know, see perhaps people who look like me, relatively young <laughs> and healthy, I hope. Um, uh, that's so, a young gentleman like yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I think those, and, and from, yeah, definitely those images have, have stayed in people's minds. And, you know, also to think about that context of the 19, late 1980s, the Thatcher, Thatcher government, you also had, for example, Section 28, right? So that prohibited the, the teaching of um, pretend families or pretend relationships, homosexuality in schools. And so you had this combination of kind of a, a silencing, chilling effect on what, what was being spoken about in schools alongside this very gr grim, grave messaging around HIV, which was of course associated with um, gay people in particular. So all these things kind of wove together. And I think they had a really lasting impact, not just for uh, sexual minorities, but like literally everyone I've spoken to about this topic, sort of that's one of the, those are the images that they, that they kind of that come to mind and that they talk about and think about. Um, and as I said, even in popular television, like It's a Sin is still rooted in that particular period and those, those particular images. Um, so it's kind of a, yeah, there's a cultural lag, if you like. Yeah, and I, I'll move on to the next question now. I was just thinking, I wonder what the, I mean, it's hard to know, right? But it'll be hard wonder what the images that we will be thinking about in 30 years time about the pandemic. Um, probably too early to know yet. I'll have to see what um, yeah. catches the zeitgeist, so to speak. Um, I remember seeing this picture in Time magazine um, and it was really early on when it hadn't reached Europe yet. And well, it probably had, but we weren't aware of it. Um, and it was this picture of this kid with a plastic, like, big plastic bottle cut out with a hole in it just so that they could hear but then so that it covered their mouth and it was obviously a family that couldn't afford to buy a mask for their kid and I just I still it haunts me that picture I mean I've got no idea you know who that family was or just a picture in a magazine but um yeah those kind of images I imagine everyone will have their their one <laughs> um yeah 
Okay, all right. And so can you just explain what you're doing now then, Max, in your current research? Sure. I mean, it's, that segues quite nicely into what we're doing at the moment, um, because we're including in that study some visual methods, which I can tell you a bit more about as well, comparing different public health campaigns and images. Um, but to give you the kind of summary of the project, it's uh, titled Living Through Two Pandemics, the Experiences of HIV Positive People During COVID-19. Uh, and I'm working with a team of researchers. So uh, I've got colleagues at Maastricht University and Birkbeck University of London uh, who are helping to, to develop the project. And uh, we're also working with three HIV charities, um, Brigstow, which is based in Bristol, George House Trust in Manchester and Metro Charity in London. So they've also they've been our project partners, helping us to design the methodology uh, and the and the methods are effectively qualitative interviews with people living with HIV. Um, and we've interviewed 20 people from a diverse range of backgrounds um, uh, across uh, various parts of England. And uh, what we're really interested in is basically finding out what life has been like for them uh, during the past year or so during COVID-19. Uh, and whether there are any lessons that can be learned from people's experiences of HIV, some of those cultural legacies we've been talking about, um, and also thinking about effective public health communication uh, and eff effective responses to global health crises, such as uh, deadly pandemics, such as these two. Um, and really, really interesting. So yeah, they're, they're very, they're some of the richest interviews I've ever done as a sociologist. They're, all of them have been two hours long, and they've included uh, visual methods. So you know, showing participants images of, as you mentioned it, that the tombstone advert, um, as well as some other kind of campaigns from the 1980s and 1990s, uh, which strike a similar sort of tone, if you like, uh, as well as uh, public health campaigns around COVID-19, um, and alongside some cultural representations of uh, HIV. And so again, getting people to kind of think about those images that stay in their mind, the potential effect of those images on things like stigma um, and, and, and again, public health messaging, you know, what's effective uh, in the short and, and longer term. So that's, I think, the, the kind of overview of it. Um, and I'd be delighted to sort of, if you have any more questions about uh, what we found, as I say, we're in the midway point now. So we've done the data collection in terms of the interviews, but we've only just begun coding and analyzing them so anything i'd say to you today is really going to be my kind of uh first impression based on on conducting the interviews so in a way it's at the moment it more feels like i've just had quite long chats with other people <laughs> with hiv sure. and so i can't give you any like uh you know any generalized claims or anything like that uh, but no, that's fine it. we'll we'll have you back on when, when you publish <laughs> your study um it sounds Brilliant, like yeah. i don't know when you must leave i mean that's a big project to put together and manage with all those different um, colleagues at other universities and, and from the, the third sector. Um, so, and so you're currently, you're interviewing all your the people that you're interviewing are people who are living, living with HIV. And what do you think it is particularly that they bring? Is there, is there something that people like, like yourself have that adds something nuance that maybe someone who wasn't living with HIV might have to the understanding of the last year and a half? Certainly, I think in many ways one of the themes that we were interested in as a research team was this idea of cultural memory and 
in a way, you know, and the title of the project, it talks about living through two pandemics. So for many of us with HIV, this doesn't feel like the first time. And, and even I can say that even as someone who was born in the 90s, right? So I wasn't around and I certainly can't remember um, HIV when it was uh, non-treatable and, and much more serious as a, as a virus um, in the UK context. Nonetheless, I sort of have this, I'm a part of this community of people living with HIV and we, we share our stories and our experiences with each other. Uh, whether it's whether it's through events that charities such as our project partners run or just through informal conversations you kind of you kind of piece together a patchwork of your own history as a as a positive person so in in the in the study we've got participants who are younger than i am uh, but who have been living with hiv for long way way longer so including people who were born with hiv um, and they have a very different story to tell than those um, who maybe even have a have a memory of the 1980s but were only diagnosed in the last few years so we use two different sort of measures we talk about people's age in terms of when they were born but we also talk about their hiv age in terms of how long they've been living with the virus and and, and what that and that's kind of created very different um stories very different sort of uh, narratives of, of living through the first pandemic of, of hiv but then also in terms of analyzing covid i think what it brings is for many of us it, it it's not it, it's not kind of uh i don't know it, it I, often when it when covid19 is talked about people talk about it in terms of like oh this is you know this is the first thing we've had since the spanish flu a century ago and they, and there's almost a bit of a a bit of a selective memory there because actually you know we have had other pandemics and one of the most noteworthy has been hiv aids and it's not over right so we're still living through that pandemic and so we use that term of living through in quite an open sense to talk about this idea that maybe we you know let's not lose sight of the fact that there are other ongoing pandemics or global epidemics uh and and certainly you know access to healthcare is very uneven uh, and and the types of people who are affected by them uh there are some differences but also some similarities you know for example people of color have been disproportionately impacted by both HIV and COVID-19. Um, so you know, we can we can start to piece together these similarities and differences. But that's something that I think people living with the virus uh, probably spend a bit more time thinking about and reflecting on and, and positioning ourselves within that storyline, within that, you know, and thinking about the 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 pros and cons of government responses as well, because we are directly impacted by that, whether it's through our day-to-day -day experiences of healthcare or through stigma or whatever else it might be. Sure, and that actually, I don't know if it was deliberate on your part, but that neatly leads me on to my next theme, which was, are there any particular policy lessons that, you, and, and this is all, we accept this is tentative, but are there any kind of policy lessons that might, you might be able to tease out of your, your work so far? So I think one of the, one of the things that I've said in, in other interviews that really stood out to me was how people living with HIV, in the UK context at least, have a, have a real sense of frustration at, at the delay in, in government response to that first pandemic in the, case, in the context of comparing these two. Uh, and it, you know, it took from 1981 right through to 1996 to get the first highly effective antiretroviral treatments available so you know well over a decade uh for the first 
life-saving treatments to become available. Whereas we've had vaccines, highly effective vaccines for COVID-19 within a year. And it's and for me, it's quite interesting talking to other people about this because there's this real sense of frustration at the inequality in response uh, and the delay in terms of developing treatments, uh, effective treatments and preventative uh, approaches. And one of the reasons for that, one of the perceived reasons for that difference is, as I mentioned already, because the people who were affected by HIV tended to be already marginalized, already stigmatized, sexual and gender minorities uh, and others. So there's this kind of feeling that, well, you know, governments just didn't, just didn't care about us, certainly among participants who, who are gay, bisexual, uh, trans people. So, so for them, there's this feeling of governments will act quickly when it affects everyone, but they'll just ignore it and erase it when it affects a minority group that they don't care about. Um, having said that, I think it's important to say that this is a, there's a frustration, but it's not bitterness. So they're not, they're, they're obviously delighted that these vaccines have become available so quickly. It's just a kind of reflective looking back and thinking, oh, that's interesting. When the political will is there, things Lots get done, done very rapidly. Yeah. yeah, and when it's not there, we've learned from experience that um, it would just get ignored and ignored and ignored. And actually it still is being ignored, right? We, we talked about how there's been no public information campaign to update the record. And that could have a huge impact in reducing stigma. That could have a huge positive health outcome in terms of people getting tested and treated more rapidly. Um, but it's just kind of, I suppose, something that government, the UK government and other governments don't really want to touch uh, because of that legacy. Um, so that's kind of one, one interesting point. Of course, in terms of- Which ironically so, will make it worse, right? If, correct me if I'm wrong, but like by not talking about it, you won't inform people. And so you won't stop the spread as much as you might have done. Is that fair to- so yeah, ironically, I, by putting it in a box and not dealing with it, the box gets bigger. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. <laughs> um, uh, and so what, what? So one of the big issues that both the UK and probably all societies, right, going to have to deal with, we don't know how long for, I mean, it could be years, it could be decades, it could be short, it could it seems like it's going to at least be a few years, right? Um, issue of long COVID, and it's just it does long COVID fit into this picture because you've got. So I'm not comparing HIV necessarily to long COVID, but like the idea of a, a long-term health issue just that is going to continue to um, need resourcing, going to continue to affect people's lives in ways that we're only just starting to understand. Is that a similar? Is there any? anything to be said on that? Definitely. I, I mean, obviously, we, yeah, you're right to point out that we're talking about two very different viruses. COVID-19 is respiratory, HIV is usually sexually transmitted, so very, very different in a number of ways. However, um, as you're kind of, I think, uh, pointing to, one of the things that this study has highlighted is that there are very big health inequalities, even amongst people living with HIV. So, for example, people who are born with HIV or people who were diagnosed prior to 1996 have very different uh, outcomes in terms of health and mental health and, and well-being uh, to those, for example, who are, who are recently diagnosed and, and can immediately start you know, taking their one pill a day, which kind of makes it a, 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 a kind of non-issue for many of us. Um, and I think one of the things that's beginning to emerge around long COVID 
is similarly that the sooner that people begin treatment, it seems to be the case that the less severe uh, long COVID will be as a chronic condition. So access to treatment, I think, is one of the key similarities here uh, in terms of you know something that governments need to be doing very rapidly now is you know, we've got the vaccine program that's rolled out or, you know, in, in this country at least that needs to continue globally um, so you know the two lessons that maybe can be drawn in parallel are one that we need to get treatment available to those who are, are suffering longer term consequences from the virus but we also need to make sure that you know pandemics are global phenomenon so some of our participants, for example, are migrants and they were diagnosed with HIV when they arrived in the UK, but had been living with it uh, prior. And, you know, uh, viruses, pandemics don't respect borders. Nonetheless, we've had some, some countries hoarding vaccines uh, and not distributing them. And, and we've seen a very similar trajectory with antiretroviral treatments. Effectively, those countries which have the pharmaceutical companies and labs to produce uh, these medicines get access much sooner uh, and much more um, you know, cheaply uh, than those countries which need to import them. And, and that's a, a, another, you know, when we think about inequality, it's both within countries and between as well. So I think those are maybe two lessons that could be learned. Um, it's interesting that you asked that question about lessons that could be learned. I'm sure you saw the report that came out as well um, just this week from the uh, Health and Social Care and Science and Technology Committees in, in the House of Commons. And that, you know, I think the, the, one of the key lessons there that they've tried to emphasize is just that the government acted too slowly. Um, and my main message would be that it's never too late to start acting quickly. So fine, we can't take back those months where we got things wrong and didn't act quickly enough to lock down or to protect vulnerable people and so on. But we can now act quicker in terms of making sure that treatment gets to those who need it, making sure that the vaccine is distributed more equitably around the world um and you know and, and and also with hiv it's still not too late for that public health awareness campaign it's still not too late for governments uh, or for third sector track organizations or, or universities yeah whoever to to start acting on these issues um rather than waiting to see how it plays out because that tends to be pretty disastrous as we've learned <laughs> yeah uh, sure. i mean I, I suppose one of the in in a uk context is we sort of I mean, I've seen it described in various ways, but we are sort of living through a bit of an experiment in that, I mean, we've got about somewhere between 35 and 40,000 cases per day, and we've been at that level, certainly above 30,000 cases per day for months. And that in and of itself feels like a bit of an experiment. I mean, thankfully we've got lots of people vaccinated, um, but I'm not like, I'm not asking you to predict what that's going to mean moving forward. <laughs> I just, I'm just thinking here, I mean, it could have just that very high level continuous, um, I, mean, I mean, if you get, you only need a small percentage of those people to suffer from long COVID for that to be a big issue um, in, you know, potentially for years. Um, okay, all right, um, Max, and before we wrap it up, was there anything that you would like to, um, anything further you wanted to say, any points you wanted to make? Um, I think the last thing really to say about the study would just be, you know, one of the reasons I was interested in pursuing this is not only as a positive person myself thinking, you know, I feel like I've got something to contribute here to this, to this kind of emerging area of scholarship, if you like, the comparisons between different uh, pandemics and, and, and lessons that can be learned. 
Um, but it's also partly from being a part of that community. I, I know that people living with HIV are often um, not listened to and are often, you know, it's a part of marginalization, it's a part of stigmatization, but we often also experience social and economic inequalities, which mean that we don't get that platform to talk about our experiences as often. And it's usually people telling our story rather than us telling our own stories. And so one of the reasons I wanted to do this project was to give other positive people more of a voice. Um, and so I'm really like sort of looking forward to being able to share their narratives in the, in the, when we publish from the study. Um, and, uh, and, and I think just one, one message, another message from them really to, to get across would be um, that we just need better representation of people living with HIV. Um, we've, you know, we've got those associations of guilt, shame, stigma, and perhaps um, overarching lead of death um, and you know, associated with the 1980s. And we, we kind of need better representation going forward. Um, you know, we've talked about it's a sin and other things that are often very rooted in that period. Um, it'd be really wonderful. I think pretty much every participant has said this. Um, it'd be really wonderful to see more of our lives today uh, reflected in the way that we are talked about and seen. Okay. All right. Well, um, if there's any um, uh, playwrights listening, um, you, uh, <laughs> you. I mean, I mean, I mean. I, actually, I just came from one of the things you could do with your interviews, right? Um, this is like a methodology thing, and there's issues around how you use people's words. But I mean, you could maybe do some like, some engagement with a with like a playwright or something to construct narratives in uh, <laughs> out of that. In, in like that idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, Max, thank you very much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, and I very much look forward to reading, whether it's in a report or a, a book or journal articles, the outputs of your project. And when they are uh, published, you and your fellow researchers are very welcome to come back on and then we'll, we'll have an update with the final kind of <laughs> final. Thank you. Final outputs. Um, thank you. It's been a pleasure and we'd love to be back. <laughs> Brilliant. We look forward to it. <laughs> okay.